All right, we're starting a brand new series today called First Firsts, and it's about all of the first things that happened in the book of Acts with this very first church. And, and, and being the first is real important. We all might remember some firsts in our life. Do you remember the first day of school? I'm 50 blah, blah, blah years old. And I remember my first day of kindergarten. I remember it like it was 50 years ago. And uh, it was kind of terrifying. And I saw all these kids, anybody gonna like me? And is it gonna be fun? And I remember that day. Um, I remember my first kiss. It was last week, but it was, you know, nice. <laughs> my first kiss was the most awkward thing on planet. I will spare you the awkward awkwardness, but I remember that. I will never forget that. Your first girlfriend, your first boyfriend, which may or may not come before your first kiss, I don't know. Um, the first time you met your spouse, uh, those first leave an indelible impression on our lives and in our souls, right? So when we read the book of Acts, we're reading about the firsts of the church of Jesus Christ. That's when the, the church first started after the resurrection of Jesus. And, and so the book of Acts is a record of all the firsts in the first church. So the book of Acts is our collective memory as, a, as the church of Jesus Christ, this global movement of 2,000 years. That's our first memory. Everything that happened in the book of Acts was the first time it happened. And we're gonna go through them one by one, the first first. And then we're gonna sort of extrapolate that to right here, right now, how can we still do that today? So today we're gonna talk about the first time the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church. It's the first time in biblical history, in human history, where the Spirit of God came into a people and radically transformed them and radically transformed the world. Now, as we talk about the Holy Spirit, I'm gonna wave a little yellow flag here. It's a little bit of a warning here. When we talk about the Holy Spirit, we're getting into some dicey territory a little bit because everybody has a different perspective, understanding, or experience with the Holy Spirit, particularly if you were raised in church. If you were not raised in church, just me saying the Holy Spirit probably creates confusion in your mind. Like, what in the world are we getting into? Well, just hang on, it'll be okay. But for those of you who are raised in church, you are probably raised in different streams of, of theology or experience that probably had some pretty well-defined um, you know, practices around particularly the Holy Spirit. I'll give you just a few examples. Some people were raised in more uh, emotional expressions of our relationship with God. And so if you were raised in a, in a hyper-emotional expression or a church that was really driven by, by, by emotion of, of music or art or emotion-driven preaching, nothing wrong with any of that at all, or maybe you're just wired as a more emotional person, the Holy Spirit to you in your experience is, is something highly emotional. And so you might say things like, I feel the Spirit here. I sense the Spirit here. Spirit is leading me here. And so people wired more emotional or have more, more emotional upbringings uh, in church will equate the, spirits, the Holy Spirit with emotions. Again, nothing wrong with that. For others, the Spirit of God is more about doctrine, knowing the Spirit of God. Um, preachers tend to come from more cerebral backgrounds, and so I tend to hang around with people who are, you know, kind of theo geeks, I call them. They're just about, it's about the doctrine and about truth, it's kind of a, a pursuit of truth, right? That's the most important thing. And again, I understand it, nothing wrong with it, but to them, the Holy Spirit is to be known as the third person of our triune God, uh, the regeneration work of the Spirit who brings the forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ, awakens us into a new life so that everything we now do in Christ is done by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's something that we know, right? It's doctrinal. Then there are those who might have been raised uh, with this Holy Spirit experience being something that's miraculous. 
And so in some Pentecostal backgrounds, it's about things like speaking in tongues, having words of knowledge. God told me to tell you something, uh, perhaps miraculous healings. Um, I am in those circles quite a bit. I have a very diverse group of friends all over uh, the Church of Jesus Christ and, and a lot of Pentecostal buddies. I'm a part of Oddly, a highly Pentecostal network of pastors. I do not know how I got there. I do not know how they let me in because this is not kind of my jam. This is not my thing, but I have a great respect and appreciation for how everyone interacts with God through the Holy Spirit, whether it's emotional or cerebral or miraculous, whatever the draw is, I understand that. And I get that because your relationship with God is as unique as you are. And, and you came from somewhere. You came from a family experience, a faith experience, a church experience that populates how you relate with God through his Holy Spirit. And it's great. There are some, and I would put myself in, in this last camp, who are more skeptic. And I know it's kind of odd to have a, a pastor who's a skeptic, but I am a skeptic. I, I pretty much, you know, don't believe anything that people say unless I get into it. I'm like, okay, you just said something. I heard something on the news, on news feeds, something theological. Somebody says something about the Bible. I'm like, okay, wait a minute. Let's get into this. Let's really see what's behind it. So I tend to be kind of a, a skeptic. I'm sort of hard to, to, to kind of, you know, get in a certain direction. And um, so for for skeptics, and this might be you, right? You may not take everything you hear at face value. And I would strongly encourage that. I would strongly encourage you never take anything I say at face value or anything anybody says at face value. Um, look into it for yourself, right? What's really there? So when it comes to the Holy Spirit, I tend to be kind of skeptical because I see a lot of things that people do that, you know, just, it just, just doesn't pass like the the truth and reality, you know, test for me. It's like, that's, that seems kind of ginned up. That seems like, I don't know if that quite happened. And, and so for me, I'm a skeptic. So when it comes to the Holy Spirit, I like to keep things super simple. The simple, plain teaching of the Bible is this. Our relationship with God is only by his spirit. Our relationship with God, every bit of it, top to bottom, left to right, every bit of it is only by his spirit. I love the simplicity of Romans 8, 16. Get this. It's just simple, beautiful. God's spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. Isn't that just simple and beautiful? God's spirit affirms with our spirit that we're God's children. Now, even that language might seem, for those of you who might be skeptics or don't quite connect with the whole religion thing, and again, I understand that, and I'm, I'm kind of with you. What does it mean, spirit and spirit, right? What's, what's, what can I get my hands around? What's tangible, right? Tell me something that makes some sense <laughs> in the real world. All right, here's my best effort. I have a relationship with my wife, and she is not here this morning. She's with my daughter at home. Sinus infection. My, do- my, my wife is not here this morning. And, and does that mean because she's not here, I don't have a relationship with her? I have an absolute relationship with my wife who is not here right now, right? My relationship with my wife is as real now, miles away, than it is when I go home this afternoon. It's as real. Why? Because it's a spiritual connection. Now, I can't define that thoroughly. I can't dissect it. I can't graph it. I just know that my relationship with my wife and all four of my kids is as real right now when I'm standing here by myself without them than it is when I was with all of them last night because it's spiritual. So however you want to define spiritual, just know that it is a very real 
person-to-person connection. We are made in God's image. And so there's something about us that connects with God. God is not here physically. God is spirit. That's one of his attributes. He is spirit. We are physical and we are spiritual. And so we have a spirit-to-spirit connection with God. And it all doesn't have to make sense, right? We just need to experience it and enjoy it. One of the ways that God sort of equates our relationship is to to compare us, who we are, as a temple in which God dwells. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says this, do you not know that that you are the temple of God? You are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you. Now that's some interesting stuff. We are the temple, we are the temple and the spirit dwells in us. What does that mean? Well, in order for us to to understand what it means, we've got to understand the idea of temple. So we're gonna take a very quick stroll through 3,400 years of history. You ready? Let's go to the, uh, the, the Old Testament, the people of Israel. They just escaped slavery from Egypt. They have their tribal God, Yahweh. They're wandering around the desert and they need a place, a temple, a sacred place to worship their tribal God, Yahweh. And so they come up with the only thing they've got, which is some wood and some cloth, and they build a tabernacle. Keep in mind, they're wandering in the wilderness. They're nomadic people wandering in the wilderness. And so they they erect this tabernacle wherever they go. And in that tabernacle, they chose one of their tribes, the Levitical tribe, to be their priest. So the entire Levite tribe uh, works within that tabernacle to mediate between men and God. And so here's here's the concept. Humankind... We know we're, we fail. We know that we are sinful. We know that we do things that are wrong. We know we're not perfect. Every tribe that has ever lived, every people that has ever lived knows they're not perfect. Every people that has ever, li- ever lived imagines God to be perfect. So there's a problem. Every religion is built by men to solve that problem. We are imperfect. God is perfect. We need a system to fill the gap. That's called religion. It's every religion on earth, including the Hebrew religion. So in the Old Testament, there are now laws, right? God's a perfect God, so he gives us his perfect law. We need to obey that law. If we obey that law, maybe we get closer to a perfect God. We also know that we need holy people and holy places to get us there. And so not only do we have to obey this perfect law, but let's go to this temple or tabernacle, and there is a holy place, and things can happen like sacrifices and rituals and cleansing ceremonies that can get us a little closer to this perfect God. And then there's a priesthood full of, quote, holy people who can then pray for us and, and, and bring us to God. And so the idea is through religious rules, laws, ceremonies, traditions, tabernacles, temples, and priests, maybe imperfect people can get to a perfect God, right? That's the whole psychology, sociology of religion all of it, including the Old Testament. So they built a tabernacle. Now, when they settled the permanent land, which is modern day Israel, they say, we need a permanent temple. And so King Solomon comes along who gives them enough political stability and enough money because he was good at trading to build a temple. So Solomon's temple was built, their first temple of brick. And it was awesome. 957 BC, 3,000 years ago, the Hebrew people had their temple. And if you read the Old Testament, they celebrated because our God now has a temple like the other people's gods. And we can have our priests that can have a real sacred place to do their sacred things to get us to God. In 587, 
That temple was totally destroyed by the Babylonians. Babylonians came in there and wiped out Jerusalem, wiped out the temple, just raised it to the ground, right? About 70 years later-ish, the Persians come in, modern-day Iran comes in, takes over Babylon, looks at these Hebrew people and say, you know what, you got to get back home. Go back to Jerusalem. Here's a little bit of money. Go build your temple. It's kind of strange that the ancestors of the Iranians were telling the Jews, rebuild your city and your temple, and here's some money. It's kind of interesting how the course of history goes. And so they rebuilt their temple. They rebuilt their temple. Now, in 169 B.C., the Greeks came in, and they plundered Jerusalem, and they desecrated the temple, and they didn't destroy it, but they ransacked the place. And the Hebrew people were just weak and oppressed, and they were overrun by the Greeks. And then the Romans came in, and so these were people who were really um, depressed. They, they were not ruling their own nation. Their city was in shambles. Their temple was in shambles. The Romans came in and said, hey, listen, we want the Jews to settle down. They're, they're attacking us. They are sabotaging us. They are annoying us. We need them to settle down. So they gave them King Herod, who was a proxy authority of Rome, Rome says to King Herod, what do these people need to settle down? We have other people to conquer. We need them to settle down. What do they want? Herod says, they want a temple. Rome says, fine, build them their stinking temple. And Herod did. He raised a bunch of money. Uh, and it took 10,000 people, 10 years, to refurbish and to build Herod's temple. And it was awesome. And the people celebrated, celebrated. It's like, we have this majestic temple. It was the one that was built on, on the, the Temple Mount that you can go to. There's still the walls at the bottom of the Temple Mount you can go to. It's that temple built by Herod. Remarkable. The people celebrated. They had some money from Herod, some money from Rome. They had a little bit of freedom in their economy. And they enjoyed that temple. And they enjoyed the priesthood. And it was the full thing. They got to do it all. Right around 26 AD, the temple was considered to be decorated. Kind of done around 26 AD. You know what else happened in 26 AD, roughly? Jesus happened. And he messed the whole thing up. I mean, he just messed it up. They had their temple, beautiful. They had all their rituals, beautiful. They had their, their priests and all their garments, beautiful. They had their systems. Man, they were just rolling, rolling, rolling. There. And here comes Jesus. Literally the year they finished decorating Herod's temple, Jesus comes. And what does he do? He starts this movement of humanity about the kingdom of heaven outside the temple. He was preaching the kingdom of heaven coming to earth and didn't even touch the temple. The only time he went to the temple was to tear the place up because thieves were in there taking money in the name of God or going into the temple to completely eviscerate the priests for their hypocrisy and corruption but the movement of the kingdom of heaven was outside the temple. It was in the streets of Galilee, in the streets of Jerusalem, and on the hillsides. This whole movement of God that had nothing to do with the temple. He, he was gathering common people. The temple was gathering the elite. In fact, the temple was a big hierarchy. There was um, one big courtyard, massive courtyard, that sort of everybody was allowed to go in unless you were unclean. And that was a whole disturbing list of who they considered unclean. I won't even say it. But you can go into that courtyard, and you could even go in if you weren't a Jew. And you could even go in if you weren't male. Isn't that wonderful? So you can go in if you weren't unclean. You can go into this outer courtyard. 
But then there was the inner courtyard that you could only go in if you were Jewish and if you were male, the right race, the right, uh, the right uh, ethnicity, the right gender. So you can go to this, this, court, this courtyard. Then there was the inner courtyard where only Jewish male Levites, ooh, the, the, the tribe of Levites, right? The priesthood then could go in. And then there was this tiny little room, no bigger than the size of this stage, a tiny little room where only one person, the high priest, could go in one time a year on the Day of Atonement. What was the temple? It was all about exclusion. Well, we won't allow you to go in here. Oh, and we won't allow you to go in here, and we won't allow you to go in here, and we won't allow you to go in here. It was all about exclusion, elitist. We're the right people. We believe the right things. We do the right things. Everybody else is excluded. That's the temple. That's why Jesus didn't spend five minutes in it, other than to tear the place apart. He was usurptive. Then at the very end of his ministry, Jesus says this, and it got him killed. I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. The people of Israel really weren't worshiping God. They were worshiping the temple. And they were worshiping the laws and commandments and the rituals and the regulations. The system. They loved their system. But God wasn't anywhere in it. Jesus was outside the system, and God was all over it. So Jesus says, I'm able to destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days. They knew he was claiming to be the son of God. In fact, the very authority of God. So they said, based on what you said, here's the verdict. Guilty. They shouted, guilty. He deserves to die. And they put him to death. They tortured him and they crucified him. And as he was suffering on the cross, here's what they said to mock him. They said, look at you now. They yelled at Jesus. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, and here you are, nailed to a cross. Well, then, if you are the Son of God, save yourself and come down from the cross, mocking him for saying, I'll destroy the temple and raise it in three days. What they didn't know, but we know now, is that the cross of Christ was actually what destroyed the temple. The cross of Christ destroyed the temple because the cross of Christ showed the full presence of God and the full love of God. The temple was a stack of stones. The priesthood were just corrupt human beings. That wasn't the expression of God. Jesus was the expression of God. He is the pure and perfect and righteous and holy and loving God. Jesus is the true temple, not the stack of stones. Jesus is the sacrifice that actually matters. The temple ran through millions of animals. Millions of animals were butchered in that temple because people needed the assurance that my sins are forgiven and somebody's got to pay for my sins. And here's, here's my, you know, cow. Didn't do anything to take away the sins of the world. The book of Hebrews is clear about that. But here is Jesus, the true temple. He's the one who bore the full burden of the sins of the world upon him. He suffered the darkness of the world, all poured upon him. Here he is, perfect love, perfect grace, perfect kindness, and the world, full of darkness, says he must die. And so the sin, the wrongs of the world were poured out on Jesus. And out of love, he gave his life. He loved us to the very end, and it cost him his life. Jesus is the full expression of God. Jesus is the one who truly bore the sins of the world upon himself not the stack of stones and corrupt priests. He was the one that brought the entire world to God the Father. 
The temple didn't do it. The priest didn't do it. Jesus went to the world and he says, all of you come. All of you are welcome. Come through me. Come through God's grace through me. Come through God's forgiveness through me. I will show you who God really is. Not your made up religion, not your useless temples, not your you know, corrupt priesthood and pastors, none of that. You come through me. When Jesus died on a cross, the temple died. The temple was destroyed because we don't need it anymore. We have Jesus. So Jesus says it is finished and he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. At the cross, the temple was made obsolete because of the selfless love of Jesus Christ who truly forgave the sins of the world and brings us all directly to God the Father. Then what happened in three days? Jesus destroyed the temple at the cross and he rebuilt it at the resurrection. Not a stack of bricks, not a human priesthood or pastorate, not rules and regulations and laws and commandments, but a move of the Spirit of God in his church to just advance the cause of Christ, to, to, to love the way Jesus loved, to give ourselves the way Jesus gave himself, to live for the benefit of others, to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth, everything that Jesus came to do, now we get to do by his Spirit. Not because we've got a building, not because we have priests and pastors, not because we obey and adhere to religious laws, but because we have the actual presence and power of God in us. So Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, told his disciples after his resurrection, stay in Jerusalem, don't leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised. In just a few days, you will be baptized, which means immersed, it means enveloped, overwhelmed by, and identified by the Holy Spirit. So the disciples waited 10 days and the Spirit of God came on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the Passover when Jesus died. During a feast, and this was so intentional, God just does that, he waited until the day of Pentecost because the day of Pentecost is when all the nations were coming to Jerusalem. Everybody was piling into Jerusalem, this great feast, this great, great feast celebrating the first harvest of wheat. Everybody gathered for that. It was a whole you know, event of the entire culture and all the surrounding people, everybody would come. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every language in that area would descend upon Jerusalem, this great and beautiful capital. On the day of Pentecost, God waited to send his spirit until everyone was there. And on that day, we, the church, became the temple of God as his spirit fills us. We became the temple of God. When Jesus died, he destroyed the temple. We don't need it, don't want it. Destroyed the priesthood, don't need it, don't want it. We have Jesus and Jesus gave us his spirit. Here's how it went down, Acts 2, one through eight. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. The disciples were in the upper room uh, where they celebrated the Passover meal with Jesus, that communion before his crucifixion. That's where they were waiting, all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each one of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. That's going to become a theme through the book of Acts. Every nation was there. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, bewilderment because each one had heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? That was an insult, by the way, to be called a Galilean. It means you weren't educated and you could barely speak your own language 
And here they are speaking fluently in the language of other people groups in the streets of Jerusalem. Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? This is a dramatic scene. This is a dramatic scene. The sound of a violent wind, fire is kind of you know, spread out. They start preaching the gospel of Jesus in other languages, many languages being preached in at the same time on the streets of Jerusalem. Quite a dramatic scene. In our closing minutes, there are four things to take away from this that all have to do with the first work of the Spirit that we can have alive and well right now in our own lives. You ready? Wind. The Spirit of God came as a rushing wind. That is the total opposite of the temple. The temple is this, you know, rigid, stone, immovable thing, right? The Spirit comes as, as wind. It goes wherever it wants. The Spirit of God is not bound by a building. The Spirit of God is not bound by priests and pastors. The Spirit of God is not bound by religious rules and rituals and laws. The Spirit of God is not bound by tradition. The Spirit of God just moves. And Jesus said that in John 3, in this famous kind of born again by the Spirit teaching. Jesus says, the wind blows wherever it wants. Just as you can hear the wind but can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. God just moves. There's nothing rigid in stone about the Spirit. So that wind is moving all around and in all of us by the Spirit of God. He just moves. How about fire? In Acts chapter 2, fire came. Fire is the universal biblical symbol of the power of God to guide, right? When you think of fire in the Bible, think of the power of God to guide. Uh, Moses, the burning bush, right? Here's, here's this, this manifestation of, of fire that leads Moses to lead his people out. When his people are out in the desert, what leads them at night? A pillar of fire, right? Fire is the power of God to lead, the power of God to guide, the power of God to move us forward, the power of God to bring light and heat to a, a dark and a cold world, right? John the Baptist said of Jesus that he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Jesus will bring the power of God and he will guide you forward. That fire is on all of us today by the Spirit of God. Then there were languages, different languages that were preached. This was the great, I mean the great uh, power of God at the day of Pentecost. This was world-changing. That God could possibly be the God of all nations. Every nation had their own God. Every nation made up their own God including the Jewish people. They made up their own God. And then here comes Jesus saying, no, the true God is a God of all, not just the God of the Jews, the God of all. And so all of this effort to kind of craft our own God so that our own God could bless our own people, that whole thing was completely thrown out the window on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter two. The first time God declared to the world the door is open to everybody. Everybody. I'm going to read this part. We're hearing these Galileans, these uneducated people, speak in our own native language. Here we are. And they're looking around. They're like, we're Parthian. And there's a Mede over there. An Elamite right there. There's a Mesopotamian group right there. They're from Judah. The Cappadocias are there. Then you're from Pontius. And those guys over there are from the province of Asia. 
in Phrygia, in Pamphylia, in Egypt, in areas of Libya, in Cyrene, visitors from Rome, the Cretans, the Arabs. You see what's going on here? This very intentional list of actual people from actual places. Every time I read that, it's like, why the list? Why not just say there's a lot of people from a lot of places? Save some reading time. God values by name every single person from every single one of these languages. And they are all equally welcome in the kingdom of heaven. All we hear these, these people speaking in our own language about the wonderful things God has done, the wonderful things that God did through Jesus Christ to bring his grace to the world. They stood there amazed and perplexed. And here's the question. And it's our question for today. What does this mean? What does it mean that the word of God is going to every language on earth? What does it mean? It means one of the most powerful truths we can imagine that the kingdom of heaven is open to everyone, everywhere. The doors are flung wide open, which means this. Hang on to your butts. God is a God of radical inclusion. God is a God of radical inclusion. That's what that means. And I know right now people are freaking out. What does he mean by that? What I mean is that God is a God of radical inclusion. And if God's inclusiveness doesn't shock us, then it's not real. God's inclusiveness is shocking. We don't want inclusiveness. Human beings don't want inclusiveness. Why? Because we think we're better than others. Oh, not me. We all, we all have a tendency to think we're better than others. We all have a tendency to think our culture is better. We all have a tendency to think our way is better. Our opinions are better. We all have that tendency. It's, it's normal. It's fine. But we got to get past that tendency and look at what happened in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, God basically, from the inside of the temple, kicks this thing open, then tears the thing down by the cross of Christ and says, everybody is welcome equally. Equally. Come. This first preaching of the gospel is in your language and yours, in yours and yours, and men and women and rich and poor, saint and sinner, everybody. Welcome. Galatians 3, 28, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female. You are all one in Jesus Christ. Let me be clear. Any environment that exists on the face of the earth that splits people apart, that treats people different, that doesn't make every effort to treat every single person on earth as absolute equals in every way is not of God. Acts chapter two, God is a God of radical inclusion. And that means we gotta get over a lot of stuff that religion builds in. That's why enemy number one of Jesus was the temple. Enemy number one of Jesus was the priesthood. Enemy number one of Jesus was the law. That's in the Bible. Enemy number one was all the things that human beings put together saying it's from God, but it's nowhere close. But it creates the exact same thing that we want. We want to feel better than others. We want to feel more right, more good, closer to God. Isn't God proud of us? You know, we believe the right things and we worship the right way and and we get in our little clusters and we convince each other that we're right and good and moral and they're not. And let me just have a little lament fest here. What happened 
what is happening right now, 2020 and sadly now in 2021, is there is a religious migration that I can tell you with 100% confidence is breaking the heart of God. 100% confidence. Because everybody's so afraid and because everybody's tearing each other apart because you know they've got the Facebook news feed that says I'm supposed to hate those people so I'm going to. We're tearing each other apart politically. We're tearing each other apart religiously. That's just the hobby of 2020 and 2021 because we're a bit afraid and we're not wired for constant stresses. And so we get mad and snappy. And, and so we've got to feel a sense of comfort in one hand and we've got to feel as though we're on the right team. And so there's this great religious migration happening where people are going to smaller and smaller congregations of the exact same thing. It's just happening out there. I don't think anybody's waking up saying, you know what, I have to go to a smaller, uh, samer church. <laughs> but that's what's happening. It's a great migration. And people are just kind of gravitating. Oh, and I, I'm now in a place where there's all the people that look like me and they all believe the same thing as I do. And we're all nodding at the exact same thing and we're patting each other on the back at how correct we are in our doctrine and how moral we are and how they're wrong and how they're impure. This great migration is happening. And here's the net result of that. There are no crowds anymore. What happened in Acts chapter two? Crowds flocked, flocked to this ministry that was happening on the streets. A ministry of all tribes, all tongues, all nations. Every ethnicity treated equally, men and women treated equally, rich and poor treated equally. There were no sinner and saint. Everybody just got the message of Christ, got the grace of Christ, received the love of Christ, the forgiveness of Christ. 3,000 people were baptized that first day. Crowds were just flocking to this church driven by the Holy Spirit of God. Where are the crowds now? Nowhere. The church of Jesus Christ has been cut in half in 20 years. In half. Why? Because our doors are not wide open anymore. You can't come here because you don't believe what we believe. That's, it's not said, but it's felt. We believe the right thing. The implication is you're not allowed. We are the moral people. You're not allowed. We're gonna judge who's right and wrong, who's moral and immoral, and we're gonna call you names, and we're gonna say you can't be around here. We're gonna gather in, in congregations that are all white, 99% white. It doesn't celebrate other cultures or diversity at all, has no intention on on, on making a multicultural experience the way it was in Acts chapter two. No intention of that. We wanna be around the same people doing the same things, believing the same things, believing we're better than others. That's just what's happening. Nobody decided to wake up and do it, but in the panic of 2020 and 21, that's where people are migrating and it is breaking the heart of God. What is it going to take for us right here, right now to experience our own first? We saw the first first of the Holy Spirit breaking, the, breaking the, the walls down, inviting everybody in, what it's gonna take for us to experience that right here, right now. I'm honestly looking around this auditorium and, I'm, and I am celebrating the diversity that is here. It's not by accident. Young and old, we don't see each other by economy. We celebrate each other's ethnic differences. We're all here to treat everybody exactly the same. We're not managing each other's list of doctrines and we're not managing each other's sins. 
We are welcoming each other into the kingdom of heaven to just enjoy God's grace and let God's spirit work. And let God's spirit work in our lives and our families and our choices. Let God's spirit work in how we live as a church. Are we gonna do mercy, justice, and love? Are we gonna keep reloading the temple religion and the pastor religion? What are we going to do? We have a choice to make. We can choose to do what Jesus did through his spirit, through his church in Acts chapter two, or we can keep loading temple and keep loading priests and keep loading pastors and keep loading traditions and keep managing all of our doctrines and all of our laws and all of our rights and wrongs and or we can just enjoy what was enjoyed here. And I'm telling you, if we do this, the crowds will come back. And on a personal level, and I'll just wrap up here because I'm way too long and I apologize. I am really looking forward to see what happens at Rancho over the coming years. I have no idea what it's gonna be. I have no idea, you know, how many people are gonna come back, how many hundreds or thousands. We were one church before this pandemic. I don't know where we are right now. We've made a lot of statements over the last year, a lot of statements, and there was some migration. I'm just gonna be honest with you. But I am so eager and actually very excited when this place gets humming again and we're back, I mean, like really back, this is really cool. I just of, yeah, anyway, this is really cool to see human beings coming back starting to feel like we're gonna be a family of faith again, a face-to-face family again, so I don't just have to stare at a camera, but a face-to-face family again that's gonna link arms and say, this door, these doors, wide open, always wide open. Anybody is welcome. Anybody is welcome. And then when we leave, our hearts are wide open. And I wanna, I wanna close with, with one thing, I, I promise I'm done. What are the types of people that are most unlike you that make you most uncomfortable? This is a good thing for us to really kind of settle on as a result of Acts 2. Who are the types of people that are most unlike you that perhaps make you the most uncomfortable? To those folks, our hearts might be a little closed because we're just unfamiliar, because we don't get it, we don't understand it, we don't understand the culture, we don't understand the practices. Who are the people most unlike you that you are most uncomfortable with? I'm gonna pray a prayer right now that says, God, would you allow us to have our hearts open to them. Build friendships, build connections, help and serve and love and live out Acts chapter two. Because if our hearts are open to everybody, bringing the grace of God and love to everybody, imagine what will happen when thousands gather again with their hearts wide open in a place that's not a temple, you know, helped by people who are not priests, but we're going to be a family, a genuine family of faith with hearts wide open and doors wide open to say, crowds, come. What's happening here is amazing, and you're going to want to be a part of it. Let's pray. Our God and Father, uh, thank you for your grace that has no boundaries, your grace that has no borders, your grace that is wide open and free, blowing like the wind across the world. Father, forgive us if we have built a single wall, if we have laid a single brick that gives anybody the impression that they are not welcome. We do not want temples anymore. The death of Jesus destroyed the concept of temple and priesthood. And the resurrection of Jesus brought a brand new life, a brand new temple that is your church and your spirit fills your church and empowers your church. And we see in Acts chapter two that it is to be wide open on the streets, helping people, serving people, loving people, showing mercy and justice and love to everyone, everywhere. As we discover what that means for us in this time of rebuilding, 
I ask that we would have hearts that are wide open to everyone, that we would seek to be a part of a community of faith that is wide open to everyone, that simply does what was done by your spirit in Acts chapter 2. For your glory and honor, in Christ's name we pray. 